Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Luke in chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, and we'll read verses 16 through 21. We have been in a series of sermons that we've given the title, uh, The Christ is Coming, looking at places in the Old Testament, texts that anticipate the coming of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Uh, Today we conclude that series. The purpose of the series has been to highlight passages in the Old Testament that in a special way prepare us for the coming of the Lord and also inform us uh, and expound for us in some ways what His ministry would be like to help us as Christians this side of the coming of Christ to better understand His person and His work. Next week, we look forward to having a visiting preacher, uh, Stu Johnston, pastor of Grace Reformed Baptist Church. That is the church that planted Emmanuel Church. And then the following Sunday, God willing, we'll begin our series in the Gospel of Matthew. But this morning, I turn our attention to Luke 4. Please follow along as I read verses 16 through 21. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, and now Jesus quotes from Isaiah 61, 1 through 2. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Let's pray together. Father, so many times we have gathered together as a local church, first in a room down the hall, then in the basement of this facility for three years or so now in this meeting space. Thank you for providing us a suitable place where we can gather for your worship. We know ultimately it's not the building that makes the church, but redeemed people united through the Lord Jesus uh, to worship you and to share fellowship with one another. You have been so faithful week by week as we gather on the Lord's Day to meet with us and to minister to all of our needs through the means of grace. Do that now again. Come through preaching to excite faith in the hearts of your people and in those who have yet to come to Christ. Please come and minister to us, speak to us, and proclaim good news to us, an assembly of poor and needy people. Pray together in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The psalm that our brother Rex read at the start of our gathering this morning in Psalm 84 describes one man's hunger for God's worship in the temple, in the old covenant. And it includes the famous line, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. One factor contributing to the psalmist's sense of desperation to be present with God's people in God's presence is that most Jews 
only went up to the temple to worship a few times a year. I don't know what you think the Jews would do Sabbath by Sabbath, but it was only on a few occasions each year that most Jews had the opportunity when it was their turn to assemble in the temple uh, to worship God. However, sometime after the temple is destroyed in roughly 586 B.C., we gain a little more clarity on how the Jews gathered to worship and to preserve their distinct heritage in an age without the temple when they gathered week by week. After the temple was destroyed, at some point along the way, the Jews began the tradition of gathering weekly on the Sabbath in what they called synagogues, which literally just means a place of assembly, a place to gather to meet, a meeting place, an assembly place. We have many references to synagogues in the gospel of, excuse me, the gospels and in the book of Acts. And perhaps you've wondered at different times. You see synagogues mentioned or Jesus being at the synagogue or Paul being at the synagogue. You wonder what were those assemblies like? Uh, what did the Jews do when they would gather together on a weekly basis? If you attended a weekly synagogue service in Jesus' day, what would you expect to see? Well, the, the program of those gatherings was very, very simple. Uh, they would begin by singing a psalm from the Psalter. Uh, they would read a traditional passage of Scripture known as the Shema. That's Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, etc., then there would be a set prayer that would focus on particular needs of the people of Israel and particular promises that God had advanced to His covenant people. Uh, typically, then, you would have a Scripture reading from the law and then a Scripture reading from the prophets. And then there would be a sermon. Uh, a rabbi would come who was selected for that particular Sabbath day, and he would preach on a particular passage of Scripture. And usually there were set passages that those rabbis were to preach on at any given time, and then the service would end with a benediction. So you'll notice that synagogue gatherings, at least at the level of form, are not unlike our gatherings here as a New Covenant church. Of course, the content and substance of the meetings is very different, and I'll add better, uh, but uh, the forms, at least, are in some ways similar. Well, here in Luke 4, the passage I've turned us to this morning, we have the only recorded instance in the Bible of an actual synagogue service. This is the only biblical record of what a synagogue gathering might have been like and what might have taken place in those gatherings. Jesus is there on the Sabbath day assembled with the Jews. Uh, something of his fame and reputation is already spreading throughout Galilee. We read in the preceding verses, in verses 14 and 15, there we read, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, that a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. So by this time, Jesus is already seen as a popular rabbi. Probably very few people would have had any sort of mature notions of who Jesus was as the Christ, but he was at least a popular teacher. And this perhaps explains why he was the one in Luke 4, in this gathering at the synagogue, why he was the one called upon to speak and offer the sermon that day. We don't know exactly if Isaiah 61 was part of the regular reading plan or if Jesus selected that text in particular. Uh, it's told he's given the scroll of Isaiah. You would have individual scrolls for particular books. He's given the scroll. And perhaps it was the set reading that day to read from Isaiah 61, or perhaps Jesus particularly selected that text. Well, we know whether it was part of the reading plan or if Jesus went off script uh, that particular Sabbath day, we know in His sovereignty He selected that particular text at that particular time to be read in that synagogue gathering. 
probably everything up until the sermon was just as it has always been. All the traditional forms in the service had proceeded apace, but this would be a synagogue gathering like no other in history. So I want you to think of this. For centuries, uh, Jews would have been gathering in the synagogue. They would have been hearing sermons on particular Old Testament texts. And the sermons would have always looked forward into the future, anticipating the coming of the Christ being spoken of in passages like Isaiah 61. I would guess there had been many sermons preached on this passage in days past before Jesus preached from it. They knew one day these passages would be fulfilled, and the Jews would be called upon then as they waited to exercise faith and perseverance as they awaited the fulfillment of the promise. However, this particular Sabbath, when Jesus assumes the ceremonial seat to teach them this passage, He preaches the most extraordinary and original sermon in history, one that could never be imitated. With all eyes fixed upon Him, the eyes of a poor and pathetic audience, perhaps disillusioned by their own failings and those of their leaders, ashamed of their history and this point to which it had led them, disappointed by a thousand unmet hopes and expectations discouraged by scores of unfulfilled promises and covenant pledges, fearful about the future of the nation and fearful about the future of their own souls. To this poor and humble audience, Jesus reads Isaiah 61, 1 through 2, and He says to them, today this Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In the passage that Jesus cites that He preaches from in Isaiah 61, one through two, there are two things happening. Okay, Jesus does two things with this passage. Number one, He identifies Himself as the Lord's anointed. And number two, He introduces the agenda for His ministry. Those will be our two headings this morning. First of all, Jesus identifies Himself as the Lord's anointed. And secondly, Jesus introduces the agenda for His ministry. Consider with me first in verse 8, 18, excuse me, Jesus identifies Himself as the Lord's anointed. Look again at verse 18 with me. We read there, Jesus quoting from Isaiah 61, verse 1, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me. Now, this language opening up this text of Scripture is pregnant with meaning, meaning that is established in various places in the Old Testament. I say this without any exaggeration or overstatement. There is hardly anything Jesus could say with reference to Himself that would be more likely to arrest and excite the attention of these Jews meeting in the synagogue than these words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me. Well, I don't know how you hear those words. It might not arrest your attention in the same way. What would have been so exciting and interesting about these particular words that Jesus claims in reference to Himself? Well, let's start with this. Children here, we speak often of Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. Uh, Jesus and Christ, these are names that Jesus has. But you recognize this, right? I hope you do. Christ is not like Jesus' last name. You know, so I am Alex DePrima, first name Alex, last name DePrima, It's not like he was Jesus, first name, Christ, last name. Christ wasn't his last name, nor was it a name that his parents gave him. No, Christ is a title given to Jesus. It is a role and an office he came to fulfill and to assume. 
So kind of similarly, some of you children refer to me as Pastor Alex. Pastor isn't my name. Pastor is just a title. It's an office that I fulfill. Well, Jesus is fulfilling, by that word, a particular office. He is assuming a particular role. He is the Christ. Well, who is the Christ? The Christ, the Messiah, similar terms, were words used to describe one who would come in the future. And that word Christ, that word Messiah, means God's anointed one or God's chosen one. The Old Testament Scriptures would speak of the Lord's anointed, the coming one, the chosen one, God's chosen servant. This is what it means when we say that Jesus is the Christ or that He is the Messiah. He is the Lord's anointed one. And, and all of the Old Testament Scriptures prepared us for the coming of this Christ. There was one coming in the future who would be the Lord's anointed. He would be the Lord's chosen one. He would be the one that we've all been waiting for, the coming one. And so the Jews of Jesus, they were looking for the Christ. They were expecting the Christ. They were hoping to find the Christ. They were hoping that He would come in their generation, this anointed one, this chosen one of the Lord. Now, what were they looking for? Uh, uh, How did they know what the Christ would be like? What did they know to expect about the Christ? Well, there's a sense in which all that the Old Testament had to say in anticipation of the coming of Jesus Christ uh, can be used to inform our expectation of who the Christ would be. That said, there were two groupings of passages in particular in the Old Testament that prepared God's people for the Lord's anointed, for the coming Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one of the Lord who would one day come. One grouping would be very obvious, and that would be all those texts in the Old Testament that spoke of the coming son of David. That is, the one who would come from David's line and rule on his father's throne forever and ever and ever. The Lord would establish his reign over Israel and indeed over all of the nations. There was this promise made to David, we considered it maybe a month ago, uh, that that David's son would one day come and that he would rule on his father's throne. And there were scores of texts in the Old Testament that shaped their expectation for this coming anointed one. You remember David, like all the other kings, was anointed of the Lord. Well, similarly, this son of David would be the Lord's anointed. He would be the Lord's Christ. He would be the Messiah, the King who is to come. And many passages speak of this coming one, the Lord's anointed. Uh, Many passages in the Psalms, for example, speak of the coming Davidic son, the Lord's Christ who is to come. One such passage is Psalm 2, a passage that is quoted many times in the New Testament. That psalm says this, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, against His Messiah, against His Christ. And this is the one of whom it is said later in that psalm, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This informed the expectation of the Jews. There's this coming anointed one of the Lord. A similar passage, a messianic psalm, is found in Psalm 45. There in verse 6 we read, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. That language of being the Lord's anointed, the Lord's Christ, is used to describe the coming king. Furthermore, of this coming king, the son of David, we have many references in the Old Testament of God saying that his spirit would rest upon David's son. His spirit would come and anoint him. God's spirit would be upon this coming Christ, upon this coming king, this son of David. One such passage is found in Isaiah 11. I quoted uh, the song that we sing around Christmas time, Lo, How a Rose Air Blooming. That's based on this 
a particular passage. There in Isaiah 11, we read, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Who's Jesse? Kids, you know who Jesse is? Jesse is David's father. So it's like saying there's going to come someone from the line of David. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. That's the first grouping of passages, passages that speak of David's greater son who would reign on his father's throne forever. Jews of Jesus' day were expecting the Lord's anointed, the one on whom God's Spirit would rest, to be this coming king. But there is a second grouping of passages that especially inform our thinking about the Lord's anointed, the Christ, the Messiah. That grouping of passages can be called the servant songs of Isaiah or the servant passages of Isaiah. There are five of them in particular. They're found in Isaiah 42, 49, 50, 53, and 61, the passage that Jesus quotes in our text this morning. These are passages that spoke of the servant of the Lord who was to come, and we considered one of these servant songs a few weeks ago in Isaiah 53. The first of those servant songs opens in this way, and I want to see if you hear resonances of this anointing language, the Spirit of the Lord being upon the Lord's Christ. Isaiah 42 verse 1 says this, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. If we were to read on in the suffering servant passages, we would see these various designations for this coming one, the Christ. He is said to be the Lord's righteous one, his chosen one, his anointed one, my servant, the servant of the Lord. Now, it's clear of these two groupings of texts that inform our expectation of the Christ, the Lord's anointed. It's clear from the New Testament that these two groupings of texts were meant to merge in the minds of Jews waiting for the coming of the Lord's anointed, waiting for the Christ upon whom the Spirit of God would rest. And it appears some of these texts, they anticipated the connections and some perhaps they did not. Well, in our passage this morning in Luke 4, Jesus quotes not from one of the Davidic passages, one of the passages that foretell the coming king. Instead, he quotes from one of the servant songs in Isaiah 61, which begins with these words, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Jesus is taking to himself these words, upon me the Spirit of the Lord rests. I am the Lord's anointed. Which means, now with that background in our minds, to claim these words to oneself is to claim to be the Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one, the coming king and the servant of the Lord. Jesus, in this sermon, in the boldest way possible, is putting the Jews on notice. God's Spirit is on me. I am the Lord's anointed. In applying these words to himself, Jesus is in effect saying that he himself is the climactic embodiment and fulfillment of everything the Old Testament anticipated. He is the one upon whom all of God's plans, purposes, and promises converge. He himself has come as the central agent in redemptive history. In Jesus, the Lord's anointed, the one upon whom the Spirit rests, the Lord's Christ has climactically entered the world stage. He's saying, I am God's chosen one. 
the coming one that you have heard sermons about for years and years and years, perhaps from your youth up. These texts are all fulfilled now in your hearing, in your presence. You have been waiting for the Christ. You have been waiting for me. Can you imagine what that Saturday morning service would have been like for these Jews? Well, first of all, first point, Jesus identifies himself as the Lord's anointed. Secondly, point number two, Jesus introduces the agenda for his ministry. Jesus has turned their attention to this text in particular as sort of the climactic moment in the synagogue to announce what his messianic agenda would be. What would mark his ministry? What did the Lord anoint him to do? Why does God anoint him with his spirit? What did Jesus come to do? Jesus describes his ministry now in terms of five statements taken loosely from Isaiah 61. All but one of them is expressed in terms of preaching or proclamation. So Jesus says, I've come to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to proclaim the recovering of sight to the blind. Then a different verb is used, but a similar idea, to set at liberty or to free those who are oppressed. And then again, to proclaim preach, to announce the year of the Lord's favor. The primary Greek verbs used are caruso and uengalitso. Caruso means to preach, to herald, to declare, to proclaim, to announce. It's one of the main verbs used in the Bible to describe preaching. Uengalitso means to proclaim good news. Jesus comes to preach a certain message, to proclaim the gospel, to announce good news. He is anointed to preach this message. The Spirit of the Lord is upon him to authorize him to speak prophetically to the people of God. But now this is an important point. There were many throughout the history of God's people who were at different times anointed to do certain things. Uh, Jesus is not anointed merely in the way that the prophets would have been anointed. The prophets were anointed by God to proclaim the Lord's will, to proclaim his word. But see, Jesus' anointing is not just as the proclaimer of salvation, he is anointed as the bringer of salvation. His anointing is both prophetic and messianic. Uh, it is an anointing of word and power. He comes both to preach the good news and to accomplish the good news that he preaches. He's anointed to be God's special agent to fulfill the promises that had been proclaimed in days past. In some ways, then, this quotation from Isaiah 61 is a manifesto of what Jesus' ministry will be and what He has come to do. He is announcing here, through the words of Isaiah 61, His messianic program and agenda in terms of the fulfillment of the prophecies of this passage. Now, there's a sense in which, if you look on at the words there in Luke 4, 18, the different things that Jesus came to proclaim and do, there's a sense in which this quotation from Isaiah 61 piles up these phrases that, in effect, communicate the same thing. However, there are important variations between the phrases that bring out the essence of Jesus' ministry in different ways. So with the time that remains, all I'd like to do is briefly look at all five statements. Uh, this sort of five-point plan. You might think of politicians or presidents who have their platform. Here's my five campaign promises. Here's the things that I'm going to do or something like that. Or some new CEO or boss at work, and he's got his plan, and he calls everybody, and he's got his program. Well, this is Jesus' messianic program. These are the five things he says and claims to himself that he's going to do as the Lord's anointed, the one upon whom the Spirit of God rests. 
So Jesus comes, first of all, number one, to proclaim good news to the poor. To proclaim good news to the poor. The verb that's used here means literally to preach the gospel, uengalitzo. It's the word from which we get our word evangel or evangelism or evangelical. Uh, evangelicals were gospel people. Evangelism is to preach the gospel. Uh, that comes from the Greek word that's used here, uengalitzo, to preach good news. Jesus' coming, we learn here, means good news will be proclaimed to the poor. Now, who are the poor? It would be a mistake to think Jesus has in view primarily or exclusively the economically poor, as though if you make below a certain amount of money, you have good news preached to you. If you make above a certain threshold, no good news for you. That's not, I think, the way Jesus is using this term. That said, the economically poor are without question to be included in this promise. And this promise may have been especially meaningful to them. Jesus makes plain again and again that status and power and privilege are not prerequisites to receiving God's grace. And in some cases, he notes they can become an obstacle in the sense that they could give to people the illusion that they're not truly in need of any grace or any help from God. But Jesus is clear, status and power get you nowhere with God. Friends, degrees and distinctions have no place here. Your privilege won't help you or advance you one inch in God's esteem. And I think this is one of the reasons why in so many places and in so many periods throughout church history, the gospel has been more readily received by the poor as opposed to the social and cultural elite. The poor are often more ready to receive the good news. They have been disabused by any notion that they can achieve salvation and redemption on their own that they can secure any standing through their good breeding or their academic or vocational achievements or their wealth and status. But the social and cultural elite, uh, those who are rich in this life, are often encumbered by distractions and temptations of worldly power, prestige, and influence. Their sense of need and poverty is impaired. But friends, the gospel is for those who know and believe themselves to be poor. The gospel says, without money, come, buy, and eat. You're here today, you have no wealth, no possessions, no standing, no degrees, no worldly distinctions, and that's just perfect. Uh, then you should have no problem uh, singing the line, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. And you know what? The rich in this world need to learn that they're in exactly the same place before God. If they're going to have any hope at all of salvation. My friend, membership at the country club doesn't get you special treatment with the Lord. He's not impressed by your SAT score. He's not impressed by your master's degree or your PhD. There's no priority boarding in the kingdom of heaven. There are no VIP sections in the church. If we're to be saved, we must all come to God as poor. But as I said, I think we'd be making a mistake if we interpret the poor to be primarily or exclusively a reference to the economically poor. But then who are the poor? If that's not the primary way in which we're to receive and hear that word, who are those to whom Jesus came to preach good news? The poor here are chiefly the poor in spirit. They are the humble poor, the lowly poor, 
They are the poor who are of a broken and contrite spirit. They are those who feel their spiritual poverty and their need for grace and redemption and salvation. They know they depend upon God for mercy and for revival. They are the poor in the sense that they live under the curse and under the bondage and penalty of sin, and they feel themselves to be sinners, and they know they have no ability in themselves to break sin's bondage or to undo sin's effects in their lives apart from the Spirit of God. They have no resources with which to establish their righteousness before the Lord. They know they need Him, and so they come weary and poor and humble and needy and hungry and thirsty, and they come to Him for life, for forgiveness, for redemption. Charles Spurgeon says it this way, the poor are a people who are not lofty in their thoughts, for they have been broken down. A people who are not proud and lifted up, but low in their own esteem. A people who are often much troubled and tossed about in their thoughts. A people who have lost proud hopes and self-conceited joys. A people who seek no high things, crave for no honors, desire no praises, but bow before the Lord in humility. They are fain to creep into any hole to hide themselves because they have such a sense of insignificance and worthlessness and sin. God has emptied them, and so they have nothing to boast of. They feel the iniquity of their nature, the plague of their hearts. They mourn that in them there dwells no good thing, and oftentimes they think themselves to be the offscouring of all things. They imagine themselves to be more brutish than any man and quite beneath the Lord's regard. These are the ones Christ refers to when He tells us He has come to preach good news to the poor. And if this is who the poor are, it doesn't matter how much money you make. You can be a millionaire and still fit into this category. And we read, it's to such people Jesus comes to proclaim Good news. He says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But to the hungry and the thirsty, he says, John six thirty five, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But to the lonely, the broken, the abused, and the abandoned, he says, John six thirty seven, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. To those who have experienced the darkness and brokenness of life in this world. He says, John 12, 46, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. To the poor in spirit, to they that mourn, to those who are meek, he says, Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. To the spiritually poor and those sick and unwell of soul, he says, Luke 5, 31, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Jesus reveals Himself again and again to be the friend of the poor in spirit, the physician of the diseased heart, and the one who feeds Him who is spiritually hungry. He has come to preach good news to poor people. Again, Spurgeon says this, now the Lord has anointed the Lord Jesus on purpose to preach the gospel to such as these. If any of you are good and deserving, 
the gospel is not for you. If any of you fancy that you are keeping God's law perfectly and hope to be saved by your works, I have to tell you that the whole have no need of a physician, and that the Lord Jesus did not come upon so needless an errand as that of healing men who have no wounds or diseases. But the sick need a doctor, and Jesus has come in great compassion to remove their sickness. The more diseased you are, the more sure you may be that the Savior came to heal such as you are. The more poor you are, the more certain you may be that Christ has come to enrich you. The more sad and sorrowful you are, the more sure you may be that Christ came to comfort you. You nobodies, you who have been turned upside down and emptied right out, you who are bankrupts and beggars, you who feel yourselves to be clothed with rags and covered with wounds and bruises and putrefying sores, you who are utterly bad through and through and know it and mourn it and are humbled about it, you may know that God has poured the holy oil without measure upon Christ on purpose that He might deal out mercy to such poor creatures as you are. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me. Why? To preach good news to poor people. This is why Jesus came. He came for the impoverished, for the needy, the sick. Friends, this is what he was sent to do, to proclaim good news to us. Number two is to proclaim good news to the poor. Secondly, he says, he's come to proclaim liberty to the captives. He has sent me to proclaim, to preach, Caruso, liberty to the captives. Again, I don't think this is a reference to Jesus literally liberating physical prisoners. Uh, in none of the gospel accounts, so far as I know, does Jesus liberate anyone from physical captivity. In fact, Jesus predicts in a couple of places that some among his disciples will be imprisoned for his sake. So there will be actually literal bondage and captivity that they're brought into. No, what Jesus is plainly speaking of is freedom from sin's bondage and Satan's captivity which, listen, is really good news, far better news, because that's our much bigger problem. Think of this, freedom from a jail cell or from physical slavery and bondage, as bad as that is, is literally worthless, literally worthless, if you remain in bondage to sin and to Satan. What good is physical freedom if sin and Satan still hold you captive? My greatest need, friends, is not freedom from oppressive governments, or to be allowed more constitutional rights, or to be given freedom from an overlord or some kind of master or boss who has too much power over me. What good would it be to live in the most libertarian kind of freedom in this life, but to die a slave to sin and a captive to Satan? Just be worthless. Friends, we need a deeper kind of freedom from a deeper kind of bondage, and that's what Jesus comes to give us. Jesus has come to deliver sinners from the domain of darkness and from bondage to Satan. He has come to save them from slavery to sin. The Bible often speaks of sin as a kind of master, as a kind of captor, as a kind of slave owner, one who holds us in bondage under its dominion. The natural state of every man is one of being in bondage to sin and one of living under sin's dominion. Furthermore, the Bible often speaks of the world being under a kind of captivity to Satan. First John 5.19 tells us the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 
Friends, to such captives, to such prisoners, to such who are in bondage to Satan and to sin, Jesus comes to give them freedom, to bring liberty to captives. Paul says in Colossians 1.13, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 1 John 3.8, we read this, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. How someone needs to hear that promise this morning. Why did the Son of God come? The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Hebrews 2 verse 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Not talking about physical slavery, talking about a spiritual bondage, a far deeper, more profound bondage. That is the larger problem men and women living under sin. Romans 6, verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. My friend, you feel yourself to be a sinner. Even now, you feel as though sin lies over your heart like heavy shackles and irons. Some here are thinking to themselves, I can't stop sinning. My sins are ever before me. I feel as though I'm in bondage. My friend, Jesus came for your rescue. Jesus came to bring liberty to those captive, to Satan and to sin, to do its will. He has come for your emancipation. Jesus comes to set you free from your bondage to sin and Satan. He proclaims liberty to those addicted to pornography, to lust, to alcohol, to drugs, to those who are captive to the God of pleasure, to those addicted to money and to all that money can buy, to those who are enslaved to the tyranny of self, to those who are held in bondage by the pride of life and the praise of man, to those who are slaves to anger and bitterness and rage and hatred and unforgiveness and malice. To those who have experienced sin as fetters on their hands and chains about their feet, Jesus comes to loosen the bonds and to give you freedom from sin's penalty and power. You who are in bondage to your sin, Jesus comes for you. The Lord anointed him for you. The Lord put his spirit upon his son so that you could be set free from the tyranny of the devil and from bondage to your sin. He comes to set the captives free. This is a trustworthy saying and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He has come to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives. Jesus comes to break our bondage to sin. And if I could bear my personal witness this morning, I've been seeing Jesus do this my entire life. Testimony after testimony after testimony I could give you of men and women I have seen transformed in bondage to all kinds of things, servants of Satan, given over to do his will, enslaved to their lusts and their sinful appetites, and I've seen God in Christ break the bondage. I've seen him do it for many here. I've seen him do it for myself. So many things that I was ensnared by, the Lord 
broke sin's dominion. Didn't just deliver me from sin's penalty, everlasting wrath. He delivers us also from sin's power, sin's dominion, sin's bondage over us. He removes our captivity to sin. This is why He came, to set us free. And my friend, while this is true, and it is, you may never be hopeless about yourself and about others. You say, I'll I'll never change. I can never change. I've tried everything. it, It can't happen. I'll always be this way. I will always be a servant to this or that sin. There's nothing I can do to change myself. As long as this is true, you cannot be hopeless about your sin. This is why Christ Jesus came into the world, to preach liberty to captives such as you are. And I'll say also, as long as this is true, you can never be hopeless about your loved ones outside of Christ. Your children who are straying off into the far country, or your parents who seem so hard-hearted, this or that loved one or neighbor or friend, the issue is that they're in bondage. But the good news, friend, is that Jesus came that they might be freed, that they might be liberated from the captivity that they're under. You know what to pray for for them, that the Lord would free them and deliver them. All right, number three, third part of Jesus' agenda concerning His ministry. He came to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Number three, He came to proclaim the recovery of sight to the blind. The recovery of sight to the blind. As you know, Jesus often literally returned physical sight to blind people. He most often did this for men and women who went blind over the course of their lives. I was talking to a couple sisters about this a week ago or so. I just find it interesting. Many of you here are wearing like really thick prescription glasses or you're wearing or you have a contacts or something like that. You realize in Jesus' day that wasn't available. Uh, almost all of the blind people that Jesus healed were people such as yourself. Uh, so my wife, if she takes her glasses off, I think she's actually legally blind. She can't drive a car without her glasses. That was the kind of blind person that Jesus would heal. Have you ever wondered, kids, you know, Jesus always healing blind people? I've only met a few blind people in my life, like people born blind. But most of the people he healed were people who went blind over the course of their life. And I know that because of the special attention that's given to the one man that Jesus healed who was born blind in John 9. In John 9, there, there's a man that was born blind from birth, and only Jesus can heal him. So he healed those who went blind over the course of their life and those who were blind from birth. When John the Baptist sent his followers to ask Jesus if he was indeed the Christ, the Lord's anointed, Jesus tells them to tell John that the blind receive their sight. Tell them that the lame walk. Tell them that the lepers are cleansed. In other words, in the miracles of Jesus, the physical miracles of Jesus, such as healing the blind, he is proving himself to be the Son of God in power. He is the coming Messiah. He is showing forth in His ministry the power of the kingdom of God, a power that will one day in the consummation cover the whole world in the new heavens and the new earth. In the kingdom of heaven, the lame will walk, the blind will see, and the mute will speak, and the deaf will hear. We sing about that in our new song, Glory Land, that we've been singing here lately. And so, in a sense, Jesus' earthly ministry was a preview of what this would be like. You can think of Jesus' ministry as the momentary inbreaking of the kingdom of God in the present day. In the new heavens and new earth, the blind will see and the lame will walk just as they did when Jesus was physically among us. But now in our text, Jesus is not talking merely 
about the physically blind receiving literal physical sight. What Jesus is talking about here is the proclamation of sight to the blind, the news of a kind of sight which is far deeper and more profound. Even in Jesus' miracles of restoring physical sight to the blind, He often used those miracles as pictures of the larger issue of spiritual blindness and spiritual sight. Throughout His ministry, those who did not believe His Word, Jesus describes them as the blind, those who are unable to see. The Pharisees He describes as blind guides. One of the things Jesus reveals in His ministry is that there is a deeper, more profound blindness that lies over the human heart. And in order for a man or a woman to be saved, they must have this blindness removed. Jesus is emphasizing that what is needed is more than physical eyes that see. It is spiritual sight that can see the truths of what He is revealing about Himself and about His kingdom. Eyes of the soul, eyes of faith that can see Him as the Savior, the Son of God, the Christ, the Lord's anointed who was to come, the one who can save mankind from their sins and grant full forgiveness through His death. What is needed is for sinners to have their native spiritual blindness removed from their hearts so that they can see and savor Jesus as the Savior and Lord of all, so that they can see Him as the Christ, the Son of God, and that they might believe in Him to the saving of their souls. And Jesus tells us here in Luke 4.18, this is the reason why He came, to proclaim the recovering of sight to the blind. Jesus comes so that blind men and women would see the glory of God revealed in Christ Jesus, that men and women would be enabled to see themselves as sinners and to see Jesus as the Son of God, the Christ, the Lord's anointed. And friends, Jesus is still doing this. He still removes the blindness of our hearts. Think again of your child, your parent, that person you've been praying for for so long. You recognize what their issue is, right? Uh, they're not just in need of some kind of remedial education or corrective therapy. And, and the solution for them is not like, well, if I could just get them to hang out with the right friends, or if I could just get them to adopt the right habits, if they could modify their behavior and stop doing this and start doing that, I think that would help them. No, the issue is that they're blind. They can't see. They have a veil over their hearts. Why do you think it's been so hard to get through to them? Why do some of you parents, as you're praying over your kids, you're wondering, why haven't they believed the message? They've been under the preaching of the gospel a million times. They haven't believed it. The issue is that they're spiritually blind. They can't see the truth. You know what you need to pray for them. See, what happens in conversion is something so much more profound than people just getting their act together. In conversion and new birth, God is giving spiritual sight to those who were spiritually dead, spiritually blind. I'll just say this, last week in the Strange New World book study, which has now come to a conclusion, we had to talk about youth groups for a while. And, and I hear this often, not as much here, sometimes I do, but more like in the, the wider Christian world, that people, what they seem to want the youth group to do or the children's ministry to do is to like get their kids to kind of like church. And it all seems like in a very superficial way. Well, if they just have someone reach out to them, and if they just had kind of a gathering that was really like enjoyable and exciting, maybe the, it'll kind of stick. 
Uh, Maybe they'll kind of stay, and then they'll kind of like church, and they'll want to come here, and they'll kind of do the things we've been asking them to do as their parents, and they'll kind of be like good Christians. Listen, it's not an undesirable thing to have a very friendly youth group, and it's not an undesirable thing to try to create a children's program which the kids enjoy. Even the lost kids enjoy coming to the children's ministry, but you recognize this, right? Your children, apart from Christ, are lost. They're blind. They're dead. That's their problem. Not that they don't have enough friends. Not that the youth gatherings aren't quite as exciting as they should be, or if they just had nacho Doritos instead of Cool Ranch Doritos, that would somehow get things going. Or if we could just get drums in the youth group, that would kind of, that would really draw my kid in. Again, I'm not diminishing the importance of contextualization and trying to make children's ministry and youth gatherings and evangelistic meetings in some way inviting. But you understand the issue is that natively we are dead in our sin and blind to the things of God. We don't need to just like churchy things better. What we need is the power of God's Spirit to regenerate us and to change us and to remove our native blindness, to give us eyes to see the risen Christ, the Son of God, as the Savior of sinners and to see ourselves as we truly are, needy and poor and oppressed and captive and dead and blind to the things of God. Our need is so much more profound than we so often think. The reason we need to recognize this is because this is why Jesus comes. He doesn't come for people that just need to get their act together. The well have no need of a physician. Those that are sick need him. Those who are poor need him. Those who are in bondage need him. Those who are blind need to be given eyes to see. This is what he comes to do. He proclaims the recovery of sight to the blind. Number four, proclaim good news to the poor, proclaim liberty to the captives. I've come to proclaim the recovering of sight to the blind. Then he comes to set at liberty those who are oppressed. I'm pressed for time, and I need to take less time on this point, so let me just say this. Uh, Here, Jesus is talking about those who are oppressed. He comes to give them freedom. It's very similar to the idea that we have earlier, that he comes to set at liberty those who are captive. But perhaps he's expanding the idea here. If you actually look at the original reference in Isaiah 61, this line is not in there. It's believed that Jesus took this, perhaps from a corresponding page in Isaiah 58, uh, verse 6, I believe it is. Uh, That's where this line is found. Jesus comes to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Now, who are the oppressed? It could be that Jesus means literally like Jews under oppression from the Roman overlords. It could refer to Jews who are under oppression from their leaders, uh, who are said to oppress them in other places. Uh, Jesus says that those leaders in their day would set burdens upon people unable to bear, burdens they themselves would never lift. Possible. This is the oppression of abusive leaders who were over the people of Israel. It could be that, again, Jesus has in mind Satan's oppression, even sin's oppression. However we think of who the oppressed are, the point is this. Jesus comes to end all oppression. Not primarily through passing the right legislation, not through revolution, but in a far more profound way, in His name and through His work on the cross, His coming. Those who are oppressed will be set free. We sing this at Christmas, right? Truly He taught us to love one another. His law is love and His gospel is peace. Chains shall He break for the slave is our brother. And in His name, all oppression shall cease. 
that Jesus comes to break the jaws of the oppressor. Whether we conceive of that as sin and Satan or men and women who oppress us, Jesus comes to end oppression, the most significant kind of oppression in breaking our sin and our sorrow and our night and also freeing us from the burden of abuse and oppression in this life through the resurrection that is to come. Number five, and then we'll be done. Jesus' agenda for His ministry. He has come to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Fifthly and finally, He has come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What's meant here? Simply this, that today is the day of salvation. Now is the time to embrace Christ. Jesus' coming is an expression of God's favor and God's blessing. This is the time in which God in Christ is delivering the poor, the captives, the blind, and the oppressed. Now is the time to come to Jesus. This is the time in which God is showing favor. Now in the coming of His Son, the Savior of the world, God is showing favor to man in opening up the gates of heaven and preaching good news to those who are poor and blind and oppressed. Today is the day of salvation. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world through Him might be saved. This is why God sends His Son. Now, friends, is the year of the Lord's favor. You have the gospel preached to you now. Good news preached to you now. It won't always be this way. Now is the time for the poor to recognize and acknowledge their poverty. Now is the time of those who are in bondage to come to Jesus that they might be freed. Now is the time for the blind to receive their sight and for the oppressed to be set at liberty. I love these words from the Puritan John Owen as he pleads with sinners. He says, why, why will you die? Why will you perish? Why will you not have compassion on your own souls? Can your hearts endure? Or can your hands be strong in the day of wrath that is approaching? It is but a little while before all your hopes, your release, and presumptions will forsake you and leave you eternally miserable. The Savior says, look to me and be saved. Come to me and I will ease you of all sins, sorrows, fears, burdens, and give rest to your souls. Come, I entreat you, lay aside all procrastinations, all delays, put me off no more. Eternity lies at the door. Cast out all cursed, self-deceiving reserves, and do not so hate me as that you would rather perish than accept deliverance by me. It's these sorts of things that the Lord Jesus continually declares, proclaims, pleads, and urges on the souls of sinners. Therefore, consider His infinite condescension, grace, and love. Why all this towards you? Does He stand in any need of you? Have you deserved it at His hands? Did you love Him first? Can He not be happy and blessed without you? Has He any design upon you that He is so earnest in calling you unto Him? Alas, it is nothing but the overflowing mercy, compassion, and grace 
that moves him and causes him to act on your behalf. Friends, this is the year of the Lord's favor. Right now, 2022. The Lord has not yet returned to judge us all. Uh, Very soon, as someone texted me this week, we will all be before his face. But now, right now, is the day of salvation, the year of the Lord's favor, and Jesus is still receiving the poor and the blind and the oppressed to himself. You're here this morning and you feel yourself to be a sinner. You know yourself to be in bondage to Satan and to sin. You know yourself to be so blind and hard-hearted. Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. Come to me. This is why I came. The Lord has anointed me. The Spirit is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor. Let's pray together. Father, how horrifying it would be to be poor, to be afflicted, to be broken, to be bruised, and to be bleeding out here on Polo Road, and to somehow know that no help was coming, how afraid we would be. Here we are, a group of sinners all of us poor and broken, all of us oppressed and afflicted, all of us weary and heavy laden, all of us hungry and thirsty. And you have sent your Son for such as we are. We pray, Father, that we would not put him off, that we would find in him the solution to all of our poverty, that we would find in him a physician who can heal our sin-sick souls, that we would find in him the one who can bear all of our sorrows, carry all of our griefs. Lord, whatever obstacles there are to keeping some in this room from receiving this good news, please, please, by your Spirit, remove them. And may the poor here in this room receive the good news this morning that there is salvation in Jesus Christ, that he will receive them, that he will make them eternally well, that he will love them, that he will care for them, that he will forgive all of their sins, and that he will set them free. May many find that freedom today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.